0: Well, brothers and sisters, it is time for this Sunday feast. So let's ask the Lord to bless this meal. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. Shape our wills that we may desire your ways. We pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture passage this morning comes from Acts chapter 10, verses 9 through 33. You remember from last week, we're skipping ahead a little bit of the vision that Cornelius had and starting with Peter's vision and moving from there. Hear the word of the Lord. It is written. The next day, as they were on their journey, that is Cornelius' men, in approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop at the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, and reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times and the thing that was, the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius having made inquiry for Simon's house stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded by the Lord. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. My wife Elizabeth, my oldest daughter Judah, and I were eating lunch one day this past week in a local Restaurant And all the waitresses were wearing shirts that said, Make omelets, not war. And Some of you might recognize that this is a t-shirt made by the local t-shirt designer, Mr. P's Tees. On their website, the description of this shirt reads, With the crazy times we're living in right now, we think everyone should eat some omelets together, be healthy and peaceful. It's hard to disagree with this sentiment. But here's a crazy idea. What if making omelets was making war? What if making omelets was making war? Let me explain. Last week, we noted how Cornelius and Peter both received visions while praying. In Cornelius' vision, he was instructed to send for Peter, which he immediately did. In Peter's vision, he was instructed to kill and eat animals, which, according to the Jewish dietary law, were unclean. This vision baffles Peter, so much so that Peter perhaps believes it's sent to him as some sort of test from the Lord. He being a good faithful Jew wants to respond faithfully so he states maybe proudly by no means Lord. I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now he can pat himself on the back for passing this test, right? Wrong. We're told that the voice came to him a second time saying what God has made clean do not call common. And Luke tells us that this happened three times before this sheet in his vision is taken back up into heaven. And maybe we can imagine that each time Peter received this same vision, he became more confused. But he could not avoid what was being repeatedly shown to him. So now, after seeing this strange vision three times, Peter is really baffled. He wasn't quite sure what to make of it, for he was being told to do something that he had all of his life known to be wrong. Luke tells us in verse 17 that Peter was still inwardly perplexed when Cornelius' men show up looking for him. Luke doesn't want us to miss how the Lord is orchestrating this whole thing. Cornelius' men showing up at this moment that Peter is still wrestling with what this vision means is not coincidence. This is providential timing. And in verse 19, we're told, and while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter really doesn't know what to make of this vision, but it will soon become much clearer for him as soon as he follows the Spirit's promptings. And don't miss, here the phrase, without hesitation. What would have caused Peter to doubt or to delay in obeying what the Spirit was instructing him to do? Well, for one, Peter was a follower of Jesus Christ, but he still considered himself a Jew, and was still living as a Jew, which meant he was still following Jewish law. Peter is about to be invited to come to visit Cornelius. Herein lies the problem. Cornelius, while being identified as an upright and God-fearing man, while being well-spoken of in the Jewish community, was not a Jew. He was a Gentile, a Roman centurion. He had not submitted himself to circumcision, as we will have confirmed in chapter 3, verse 11, or verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. I get that right. Meaning he had not become a proselyte and fully accepted the Jewish faith, to which we might respond, so what? He was a good guy, a virtuous guy, a godly guy. That he wasn't a Jew might seem to be no big deal for us. But Cornelius being a Jew, being a Gentile was a big deal because this would mean that Peter could not have any sort of true fellowship with him. Why? Because Gentiles were understood to be ceremonially unclean. And Jews were therefore not to associate with them because it would defile them to do so. You see, the Jewish people had been given ceremonial laws that were meant to set them apart from the other nations about what they were to eat, about what they were to wear, about how they must cleanse themselves before the Lord in order to separate them out as God's people from the other nations. As one commentator points out in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, the laws of clean and unclean are linked precisely to Israel's separation from the rest of the nations. And the commentator then goes on to give the implication for this for Jewish Christians, especially for Peter here. The Jewish food laws represented, presented a very, real problem for Jewish Christians in the outreach to Gentiles. One simply could not dine in a Gentile's home without inevitably transgressing those laws, either by the consumption of unclean flesh or of flesh that had not been prepared in a kosher, i.e. ritually proper fashion. We're going to see this later in Acts 15. This would have been no small dilemma For Peter, and it's no small dilemma for the early church. This is what might have given Peter doubt or delay in obeying the Spirit's promptings. He was being invited to have fellowship with a Gentile and to share the gospel with him. And based on his working beliefs, he could do neither, really. He could not associate with a Gentile, which meant he couldn't truly extend the gospel to him without him first converting to the Jewish faith. But God was leading Peter through this vision to this encounter where he is commanded to go with these men to Cornelius, a Gentile, and he wasn't to have any scruples about going and extending the gospel to him and leading him into faith into in Jesus Christ. And we know the story. Peter does go, and as he goes, he's working out the meaning of this vision. And we're meant to see with Peter that the dietary laws concerning which foods were clean and unclean All that has been overturned by God, thus removing this barrier between Jews and Gentiles and allowing for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. It was allowing the gospel to reach the ends of the earth and for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue to be welcomed into the family of God. It's a tremendously important moment in Acts in salvific history. But it wasn't just the food that was no longer to be considered unclean. It was the Gentiles themselves. This is the conclusion that Peter gets to. When Peter finally arrives at Cornelius' home a few days later and meets Cornelius along with all of his friends and relatives, Peter comments to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me. That I should not call any person common or unclean. All of them were aware that this was a big deal, that Peter was there. They were all aware that this was the Lord's doing. And there's some wonderful lessons for us here. For one, we can eat all our favorite foods, right? If you want to wrap your freshly killed dove or duck meat in some bacon... Or if you just want to eat bacon by itself. Or if you want to use milk to marinate your venison. Or if you want to have some crawfish etouffee like I did on Friday. Or some fried alligator or frog legs. Go right ahead. But that doesn't really get to the heart of it, does it? Some take this passage to mean that the purity laws can be dismissed as though they were simply an old category of And that purity simply doesn't matter to God any longer. It's certainly true that the dietary laws are no longer in effect. And this is sort of an aside, sort of. But I always shake my head when I hear someone make a comment about how Christians choose to ignore some laws in the Bible while holding to others. And usually what I hear is that Christians fuss about laws related to things like sexual morality even though they eat shellfish and wear clothing of multiple fibers. and This argument reveals that the individual has no concept of the difference between the ceremonial law and the moral law, the purpose of these laws, and how these laws are to be viewed in light of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. What the passage is saying is that these laws are no longer in effect, But it's not saying that they don't matter. We are to understand that these purity laws were an instructive placeholder in preparing Israel to receive Jesus Christ. It isn't that purity is now unimportant to God. Rather, these ceremonial purity laws taught Israel to be a particular people in the world not to live according to the ways of the world, but to react with revulsion against things that cause defilement. But Jesus teaches that it isn't what is put into the body, what comes in contact with the body, that makes one unclean, but that which comes from the heart that makes one unclean. What we are meant to see is that as much as one might be disgusted by and avoid those with a disease like leprosy, we should be disgusted by and avoid the sin of lust or pride or greed. And as much as the Jews had cleansing rituals when they came into contact with something that defiled them in order to continue to approach God and address God, <clears throat> as well as to remain an active member in the community of faith, we must seek and rely upon the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ to purify us from our sin that we might draw near to God and be members of his body. We must confess our sin and repent of it, trusting in the promises of the gospel that we have been set at peace with God. So it isn't that we are unconcerned with defilement. We better be. But what we see in Jesus' life is that he doesn't avoid circumstances that the Jews considered defiling. We remember that he was willing to touch the leper and the ceremonially unclean. He was willing to befriend the tax collectors and sinners. Why? Because he understood that he would not be defiled by these things. Rather, he had the power to cleanse by his touch and purify by his presence. This meant that those he came in contact with and cleansed were able to take part once again in the faith community. Whereas the Pharisees lived a lifestyle of fear and avoidance of external defilement, seeking to maintain ceremonial purity, Jesus didn't fear others. He didn't avoid others. And in this way, Jesus didn't show partiality. This is another important lesson in this passage. God is revealed to not show partiality to any one people group. The gospel must go to all the nations, Jews and Gentiles alike, because God has chosen his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So every barrier must be brought down. But there is something that is very curious to me in this passage. Think about all the things that are related to cleanliness. It wasn't just about food, right? It was about defilement in general. And one could be ceremonially unclean because he or she worshipped idols. Or because of the type of clothing or handling unclean things like a dead body or diseases or even menstruation and childbirth. So why then is it that food is the focus here? Have you thought about this? Why is it food? And there's a simple answer. As one commentator puts it, it's simply not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share in the intimacy of table fellowship. The early church had to solve the problem of kosher food laws in order to launch a mission to the Gentiles. The food issue was a major barrier to, to the Gentiles being brought into the family of God. It was a wall that must be brought down for practical fellowship purposes. So it wasn't insignificant. I'd like to suggest something else. Think about the significance of table fellowship in the Bible. The importance of sitting down and sharing a meal together. There are some memorable moments, right? Like when David invites Mephibosheth, the disabled grandson of Saul, to have a place with him at his table. This is, this was a prerogative of the king. It was a way for him to extend his sovereign grace and mercy to his subjects, especially to those who had been conquered. David could have had Mephibosheth killed. Instead, he invited him into his home and to his table. This is also what we see happening with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who extended the offer to Daniel and his friends to dine with him. There is another king in Scripture that's often seen eating with others who are seen as most unworthy. When Jesus begins his ministry according to the Gospels, Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God that in him the kingdom of God had drawn near. And almost immediately after that, we find him doing what? Sitting down, reclining at table, feasting with Levi and his tax-collecting buddies. The king has come, and who is he inviting to his table? And we're told that the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, asking, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? This was offensive to them. It was an issue of defilement, right? The Pharisees avoided these types of people, but Jesus didn't. And we see in Scripture that even when Jesus was in others' homes, he was always the host at the table. And he invited the most unlikely guests. Tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners like us. And he offered them hospitality, gospel hospitality. He welcomed sinners into his presence and he ministered to them, extended kindness to them, and it brought them to repentance. You see, this was a way that Jesus waged war against the kingdom of darkness. It's one of the unlikely weapons that God employs in spiritual warfare. But then again, God does not fight according to the ways of this world. This is what the Apostle Paul tells us tells, in, tells us in his letter to the Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, meaning we are not waging war according to the ways of the world. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul tells us that our weapons are not worldly ones, because we are not fighting a worldly battle, but a spiritual battle. So how we fight is with expressions of the power of the Spirit of God. But before we determine what... The means of our warfare is that will be used as expressions of the power of the Spirit. We have to first determine what we are waging war against. and We know that we are fighting against the powers of darkness, but Paul says here that our warfare is aimed at destroying strongholds. Stay with me aimed at destroying strongholds. This word stronghold alludes to the bulwarks constructed by citizens to protect their city from outside invaders. So what are the bulwarks constructed by the prince of darkness to keep people from hearing and receiving the gospel? Well, Paul says that they are destroying arguments in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and this gives us a hint. His opponents have raised objections to his preaching and to his apostolic authority. But this doesn't mean that Paul simply responds with verbal, intellectual arguments. This isn't a debate with words. Even though this might be how we interpret what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 10, since he states that they are taking every thought captive to obey Christ. If we look at the full context, though, what Paul is saying is that he offers his life as a witness to the power of God to affirm the gospel he preaches. How? Through his weakness, through his suffering, through making himself vulnerable to those around him. If you've been reading the daily devotion for this month's Table Talk, then you've been seeing Paul's argument here in 2 Corinthians, even in the early chapters of this epistle. He says here in chapter 10, though, that he's being criticized for his humility, that he isn't employing the rhetoric of his day. He could have argued with the best of him, best of them, but he isn't. What he wants, rather, is for others to see his brokenness in order that they might see in him the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It doesn't mean that Paul wasn't pointing out errors and heretical thinking. It doesn't mean that he wasn't correcting others with the truth of the gospel. But the reality is we don't argue people to faith. I've tried it. I was a philosophy major. We love to dabble in logic and rhetoric. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work because what we are trying to do when we share the gospel isn't just to change the mind. We're trying to change the heart. This is the key. And the heart is the center of the will. We will chase after what we desire. And Satan knows this. And so he creates bulwarks. And what are those bulwarks? Pride. Hatred. Anger. Jealousy. Self-righteousness. Suspicion. Satan uses these sorts of things to create hard-heartedness in us against others and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what causes divisions among us. Pride isn't going to be argued away. Hatred isn't going to be argued away. It will only become further entrenched. We're seeing that right now in our country. So why did Jesus dine with sinners? Because it broke down the bulwarks of Satan and turned sinners' affections to himself. As Rosario Butterfield points out, Jesus dines with sinners not because sin is no big deal. Jesus dines with sinners not because he expects us to go on sinning. Jesus dines with sinners not because he knows that some of us are just more prone to certain sin than others and he gives us a free pass when our inclinations lead us into sin. Jesus dines with sinners so that he can get close enough to touch us, so that he can participate in the intimacy of table fellowship as a healer and a helper. Jesus comes to change us, to transform us, so that after we have dined with Jesus, we want Jesus more than the sin that beckons our fidelity. This is why God focused on food here in Acts 10. Table fellowship was to be a primary weapon employed in the warfare against the kingdom of darkness. It was the way that God broke down the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. But even more than this, it was to be the means by which the Gentiles would experience the hospitality of God in Jesus Christ through his people. It was a way that the Gentiles would be invited to sit at table with the king of kings through the Jewish Christians and come to know his kindness. It was a way for the Gentiles to be touched By Jesus transformed by him because it would provide the means by which Christians could effectively share the gospel with them fellowship with food would open up their ears and hearts to the gospel but here's the reality. Even though we don't experience this division between Jews and Gentiles, even though this isn't an issue for us, gospel hospitality, especially through table fellowship, is still an effective weapon in God's arsenal. It's still a means by which walls are destroyed, and there are still plenty of things dividing believers from non-believers. Bulwarks that Satan has created and that God is working to destroy. Table fellowship is still a means by which people come into contact with Jesus Christ through his people. And so table fellowship isn't merely something to be employed within the church community. You see this rhythm of life that we share among ourselves as a Christian community, extending hospitality to one another, sharing meals together as God's people. We found the early church already doing this in Acts. We're also called to extend this hospitality to those beyond our community. I know this might sound really odd and counterintuitive in a world that continues to grow more hostile around us. As Zaria Butterfield states in her book, The Gospel Comes with a House Key, let's face it, we have become unwelcome guests in the post-Christian world. Our children ride their scooters in neighborhoods where conservative Christianity is dismissed and denounced as irrelevant, irrational, discriminatory, and dangerous. Many of us go to work in places where sensitivity training has become an Orwellian nightmare. Where sexual orientation is now considered a true category of personhood, who you really are. Where biological sex is no longer considered a factual reality. Offering God's designed blessing for all humanity, but only a psychological reality. It's meaning subject to how you feel. Christian common sense is declared hate speech by the new keepers of this culture. The old rules don't apply anymore. And as much as we wish that this were not true of our little southern community of Monroe and West Monroe and Washtenaw Parish, we know all too well that it is true here. The question is, how will we respond as the world around us continues to grow more and more hostile to the church? We've only got a few options. Do we try to conform Christianity to be something... That's simply agreeable to all? Is that what we do? Do we make it a respectable religion without offense? It's an option. It's an offense to the gospel, though. Another option is to simply isolate ourselves. Shut ourselves in. Build bigger walls around ourselves to protect ourselves. Build a moat. Pull up the drawbridge. And maybe we can shoot arrows from inside our fortress through Twitter and Facebook. But is that obedience to God? Is that the type of warfare that drives out darkness and brings in the kindness of the gospel? Does God call us to shut ourselves off from the world, or does he call us to go? So neither of these are good options, are they? Neither are gospel options the pattern that Jesus sets for us is not one of fear it is not one of avoidance of others it is radical hospitality we see in the gospel accounts that Jesus advances his kingdom through the dinner table it isn't the only way but it is one of the ways so what if making omelets was making war What if the weapons God intends to use are ladles and pots, casserole dishes, and cookie sheets? What we must realize is that as we go in his name, we are called to extend the hospitality he extends to us. And in doing so, we are extending an invitation to others to be welcomed into the king's presence, to experience his grace and mercy that he offers as the sovereign king. And this happens because when we invite others into our homes to sit around our tables, we are inviting them into our lives where God is present and at work in power. We invite them not to hear our verbal arguments, but to see who we really are, to see our weakness, our brokenness, and marvel at the goodness of God as we show them that we are sinners saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We invite them to come and join us as we gather and give thanks to God and share the blessings that God has given to us. We invite them to hear us and participate with us as we pray and we sing around the dinner table. And this hospitality then becomes a means by which others experience through us the goodness of God's kingdom and begin to desire it for themselves. And this means that it is the way in which the enemies of God are disarmed. As we make ourselves vulnerable and available, it becomes a lot harder for our enemies to caricature us. To claim we are uncaring, unloving, or mean-spirited, gospel hospitality is how we kill them with kindness. But it is also how they are invited to witness and experience peace with God that we experience. This is how God destroys the bulwarks established by the kingdom of darkness. It is the way in which God wages war. It isn't through arguing and fighting. It is through feasting. It isn't with guns and bombs, but it's with forks and spoons and butter knives. We aren't throwing grenades. We are pouring lemonade and tea, passing bread, and encouraging second helping. Rosaria Butterfield, who I've mentioned this morning and in several previous sermons, came to faith through a Christian couple consistently opening their home to her. Even though she herself came with an agenda in hatred directed at them. She calls what this couple did for her radically ordinary hospitality. It gets to the root of what the gospel calls us to. It's ordinary because it is everyday life. She defines it in this way. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbors and neighbors family of God. When our Christian homes are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our bodies, our families, and our world. She says this, radically ordinary hospitality serves ravioli with redemption life. It is fearless. It is faithful. As Russell Moore writes, describing another context for spiritual engagements with culture, it doesn't blink before power, but it doesn't seek to imitate it either. This is what the gospel does. The gospel creates community that welcomes others in. Dearly beloved, you have people in your lives who are not believers. It might be your neighbors who claim to be Christian but who never step foot in a church. It might be a coworker who is openly hostile to the gospel. It might be your son or daughter's sports coach. Here's what we are posed with in this passage. How are we willing are we willing to invite these individuals into our homes? even those who might have very different ideas from us, even those who might strongly disagree with us, even those who might be hostile to us, who have preconceived notions about how judgmental Christians are, about how bigoted we are, about how hypocritical we are, how ignorant we are. God has a means to destroy these bulwarks that are keeping them from knowing God's kindness and placing faith in Jesus Christ. We have a very powerful weapon if we will make use of it. And if we would, perhaps God's by God's grace, we would be given the opportunity that Peter was with Cornelius. Tell us, brother. Tell us, sister. All that you have been commanded by the Lord. And to God be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have come to us and made yourself available to us. You extend to us by your grace, hospitality in Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are most unworthy, for we were your enemies. But you have drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. You have given yourself to us in him. Lord, help us as your people, saved by your grace, to extend ourselves in this way to our neighbors. Help us to extend your hospitality to them through welcoming them into our homes and into our lives and around our tables. And may you use this as a means of waging war against the strongholds of our enemy. May you, the Lord of hosts, come and fight and win. And may you receive all the glory. For we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ and for his sake. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Christian, whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.